I know. But you know it's good when you just want to start singing with the choir. And uh, so appreciate that ministry, Laurel, your ministry, everyone's ministry this morning to us. You have done a good work to prepare us for the Word of God. Take your Bibles this morning, turn to John chapter 12. If you need a Bible this morning, we would long to uh, loan one to you or give one to you. Frankly, you can have it. Uh, we have ushers in the back ready to give Bibles out, so feel free to raise your hand if that would be you this morning. Take your scriptures to John chapter 12. We're going to begin at verse 36 here in a moment. Uh, you know, we've been going through the Gospel of John, and perhaps more clearly uh, than any others, we do have a Bible, I think, need over here to my, uh, to my left here. So ushers, if you could, uh, if you could grab uh, a Bible, and to the left here, please. Um, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Uh, we've been clearly looking at the Gospel's presentation of Jesus' public ministry, and perhaps no other Gospel gives more clarity to when Jesus' public ministry ends and his private ministry to his disciples begins. In fact, most commentators divine, uh, divide the book of John in such a way. His public ministry up through chapter 12 and then his private ministry uh, so from this point on, uh, Jesus is going to remain out of the public's viewpoint until the crucifixion, the trial and the crucifixion. So that's something to keep in mind as we read here this morning, beginning in verse 36 in the Gospel of John, chapter 12. Jesus, kind of coming in from his uh, plea uh, to those who refuse to believe, he says this in verse 36, "...while you have the light, believe in the light." so that you may become sons of light. These things, John said, Jesus spoke and went away and hid himself from them. And so really from this point on, Jesus remains out of viewpoint. Now John gives us another statement of Jesus after this, and we're going to look at that as well this morning. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him and Pastor Mike even reminded us this morning that this is John's purpose statement, right? I am writing these things to you so that you would. Verse 38 gives us some perspective of what's happening in Jesus' ministry. Verse 38, he says, uh, This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah. So we're going all the way back to the prophet Isaiah, which he spoke. This first, this first prophecy is from Isaiah chapter 53. Lord, we looked at this a little bit last week, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 39, for this reason they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, and now we're looking at Isaiah chapter 6, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval or the glory of men rather than the approval or glory of God. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me, 
does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to, the ju- to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at that last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father who sent me. He has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, these things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. As we approach the end of Jesus' public ministry here in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, I think it, there's a question lingering in the air a little bit. Can you feel it? It's one of those questions that really is not verbalized by John, but I think we can sense it as we read through the text. And that question is this, is Jesus' ministry really that successful? Remember, John writes saying, Jesus came, and I'm writing these things to you so that you would believe, but John presents the very reality of something quite different, doesn't he? He actually expresses that there is a giant elephant in the room as we're reading the gospel with John, and the very people that Jesus came to save refuse to what? Believe. And so by many estimations, Jesus' ministry, his success, may be in question. And of course, we know that Jesus prays. Remember that? Verse, in chapter 12, earlier we looked that Jesus prays that his ministry would be successful. He wants to glorify God. And, he, and, and indeed, we have this affirmative right away, this thunderous saying from heaven, the God of heaven saying, yes, you are glorifying me, you have glorified me, and you will glorify me. So there's no question from God's perspective that Jesus' ministry is successful. And on the surface, I know we would, as Christian hearers, say, of course, he's God's son. Everything he does is a success. But as you start diving into the details, uh, we tend to define ministry success in certain ways, don't we? That's why we're always amazed and enamored, baby, by numbers instead of by true belief. That's why we're amazed and, 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 and we, we love all these programs that churches can provide. Uh, we have wonderful opportunities here for discipleship in the children's ministry and the teens ministry, and there are churches that just cannot do that. Either one, because they don't have that kind of children, that kind of life in their church, or number two, they don't have people that can actually accomplish those things. So are we more successful as a church than some other churches because we have those programs? Is that the measure of success? You know, some church growth experts say that ministry success is is 10% growth year after year after year. Is that the real measure of success? Because if it is, Jesus' ministry, quite frankly, falls flat, doesn't it? So we really have to ask the question, what is Jesus' ministry, and is it indeed successful? From a Jewish perspective, and even from his disciples' disciples' perspective, at this point in his ministry, 
he's been rejected by the Jewish religion leaders, religious leaders. And they're now actively seeking to kill him. How successful is that to win over the hearts? In a few short days, he will be subject to public humiliation and death. How successful is that? In our own passage this morning, we're told that Jesus has to start going into hiding. How successful is that? His most bold disciple in a few short days will reject him three times and once to a little girl. How successful, my friends, does that appear? And so John, I think, wants to deal with this giant elephant in the room at this point in the gospel. And of course, we're going to see that Jesus' ministry is completely and 100% successful. But we want to deal with those things. Look at verse 36. Would you define Jesus' ministry this way? Because a typical definition of success would not be a ministry where he would need to go into hiding, as I've already mentioned. Verse 37, a typical successful ministry would not show great signs of God's power, but yet no one believes. You see that there in verse 37. In verses 42 and 43, a, success, a successful ministry would have seen in, influential men, the, the religious leaders of the day, come to him so that they could turn the culture to God. But yet, that's contrary to what we read in verses 42 and verses 43. And so the problem by most anyone's standards is the question, is his ministry successful? And this morning, I want to preach to you on the very reality that Jesus' ministry is powerful and merciful. That there is a powerful, merciful ministry of Jesus Christ, and we will first see that reality of Jesus' ministry through something that we would not choose to demonstrate. We would not choose to bring it up. We choose to kind of cast it aside, sweep it under the rug. Because you know what actually demonstrates the powerful, merciful ministry of Jesus? It's going to shock you, but we've already read it. The necessity of unbelief. Unbelief demonstrates the power and the mercy of God. You say, Pastor Steve, you have lost me. How in the world is that possible? That's going to be one of my tasks this morning. To show you how John, I think, is actually taking something that is a tragedy and he's making it a triumph. He's trying to show us that this is not an accident. In fact, this is the very plan and purpose of God. And so we see, first of all, the necessity of unbelief. You know, this prophecy that Isaiah in verses 38 and again in verse 40 brings up. This is 700, 750 years before Jesus Christ. And it echoes for decade and century after century saying they will not, what? Believe. And indeed, Isaiah goes a step further and says they cannot believe. Verse 39. So how in the world does that demonstrate Jesus' power and his mercy and his ministry accomplishments? 
Well, first of all, we see that this unbelief fulfills prophecy, and those are in verses 38 through 40. And I hope you'll hang on with me this morning because, you know, no one really likes to talk about the hardening of God in someone's heart, the the fact that God actually does it. But we're going to actually see from this text that it is actually one of the most merciful things that God does. And he accomplishes his great purposes. And so in Isaiah chapter 53, we we see this prophecy that he brings about. uh, Here, John brings up in verse 38, this was to fulfill the word of of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the the Lord been revealed? And you know what that picture of the arm of the Lord is? That is a picture that he is strong. He is strong to what? He is strong to save. It is actually demonstrating the very power of God in belief, in salvation. Israel understood and knew the arm of the Lord when they walked through the Red Sea as Egypt was pursuing them. They knew the strong arm of the Lord as they for 40 years were provided by the manna from heaven. They knew the arm of the Lord. Victory after victory after victory. But yet, Isaiah also articulates that they will refuse the actual person of that arm, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because look at what happens in verse 37. Though they knew these things... And now we have Jesus who is performing miracle after miracle after miracle. And John here calls them signs. And though Jesus has done so many signs for so long, and it's not even arguable. I mean, the Jewish religious leaders, they are not arguing the fact that he has not done these things. They're not arguing that. They're concerned because he has. Cause the lame to walk and the blind to see, turning water into wine and raising a dead man to life. That's exciting. And that would change your life if you saw it, or would it? Because though they saw those things, what happens? What does John say? Remarkably, they did not believe. They did not believe. And though those things demonstrated the very power, the very arm of God in Isaiah's words to save, they refused. And that's mind-boggling. That emoji, the emoji, what did I say wrong? Emoji, thank you. Emoji, right? The mind-blown emoji. That's all over the place here. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, I don't know what I'm talking about. So don't feel bad. But I tend to use that one a lot. Because I have a small mind, and it gets blown up pretty easily. It's pretty incredible that they did not believe. And what is remarkable is that the spiritual blindness and refusal of the Jewish people to accept the Messiah was predicted 700 years earlier by the prophet Isaiah, and certainly before that time, but with clarity there. Who has believed, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So the prophecy goes further than stating that the Jews would not believe. It states, as I already mentioned in verse 39 and 40, that they could not believe. Why? Because the Lord hardened their heart. 
We don't have time this morning to go back to Isaiah and unpack all of that, but a survey of that book and other Old Testament realities would understand that God first gives mercy to his people long before, long before any hardening of a heart. So before there's hardening, if this is a problem for you this morning, remember that God's mercy always came before. And we're told it's going to come after. And so remember, mercy always goes before hardening. And you can unpack that from Isaiah. We don't have time to do that this morning. In Isaiah's day, it was due to their stubborn disobedience. But you know, hardening of heart is not a new new concept, is it? Think about early on in Israel's history. Think about Egypt. Think about you thinking? Pharaoh. Remember that? Remember there? God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Do you know how many times God, God it said in Exodus that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? It's not a one for one for the plagues, but how many plagues were there? How many times did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Ten times. But you know what's also amazing in that text? In, in Exodus? You know who else hardened Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh. You know how many times in Exodus it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart? Ten times. Ten times. And so we see that unbelief is an outside of God's sovereign control, but it also is wrapped up in the responsibility of man to respond to God. And this is true for Israel as well. And so Israel was stubborn and they refused. And John says that 700 years ago, the prophet Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would come and that they would still be hardened in their heart towards the wonderful, merciful Savior, the Messiah that was promised. Psalm 81 puts it this way, But my people did not listen to my voice. This is verse 11 and 12. And Israel did not obey me. So whose, whose responsibility is it there? It's Israel's. Verse 12, So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. God gave them over to those things. And this psalm has application for us today. Who primarily, listen to me, who primarily makes up the church today? Our church is a little unique. We have a few actual, actual Jews that are born again and in our congregation this morning. And praise God, that is a miracle. But you know what? So is every new birth in sitting here this morning. But who primarily makes up the church today? Yeah, I kind of led with the Jew thing, right? So Gentiles. Yeah. And that is pretty much, bar none, the reality of church history for about 2,000 years. Save a little bit of time at Pentecost where God worked miraculously and mercifully in his people to bring them to Christ. And then from there, the gospel goes out. And it really is a gospel to the Gentiles. And we see Paul take over the scene and go. Can you take your Bibles this morning and turn to Acts chapter 28? Because I don't want to miss the realities of, of what John is bringing to light here about Jesus' ministry and why it's so important that we understand that it is a demonstration of the power and mercy of Jesus' ministry that there is unbelief by God's people, Israel. 
It's not in spite of it. It's actually because of it. In Acts chapter 28, verse 20, you've got to hang on with me. We're going to go to a couple passages here, and I hope you like reading God's word. Okay. Verse 20 says, For this reason, this is Paul speaking. He's speaking to Jews in Rome. He's in prison. He's, he's in chained. And he's going to Rome. He says, For this reason, therefore, I request to see you, that is, the Jews in Rome, and to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. In other words, that's why he's in prison, right? He longs for them to come to Jesus. Verse 21. They said to him, We have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. In other words, they're not coming with any preconceived uh, 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 bias with Paul and his ministry. Verse 22, But we desire to hear from you what your views are concerning this sect. What's that, this sect? Yeah, that's Christianity. Okay. It is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. Not a power pop, popular uh, 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 religion at this point. Verse 23, When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him as his lodging in large number, at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus. He was giving them the gospel from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. By the way, this is a great little systematic theology thing going on here. Paul is actually using the scriptures in one specific topic, saying, I want to show you through the law and the prophets, what? Jesus. Verse 25, and when they did not, uh, did I skip something? Uh, I did. Verse 24, some were being persuaded by the things spoken. Oh, and by the way, uh, let's go back to verse 23. From morning until evening. Okay, let's just, you know, at 10, 11, 15, let's just remember that, all right? No. <laughs> I'm not Paul. I appreciate that. Verse 24. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And now we start to ramp up where we're getting at. Verse 25. And when they did not agree with one another, that is the Jews talking about the Messiah as Jesus, the anointed one, the Christ, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. And guess where that word's from? Isaiah chapter 6. The Holy Spirit rightly said, spoke through the Isaiah the prophet to your father saying, go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. In their eyes, they scarcely, excuse me, in their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return. And that word return in this passage, translated in Asby, is the same word in our passage, what? Converted. That they would turn to Jesus and I would heal them. Verse 28, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. Now we understand in church history why it is the way it is. And I know this is not new revelation for you, but it's good to remember when we read something like we do in John about God hardening Israel's heart. They will also listen 
When they had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. So we see the blindness in the Jewish people is still even to this day. Let me just read to you 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14. Paul puts it this way. But their minds were hardened. He's talking about Jews. He's talking about Israel. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant, Paul says, the same veil is unlifted. And what's that veil? That veil is the stumbling block of Jesus Christ. But you know who has to remove that veil, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3? The veil that's covering their eyes that they cannot see? Who is the only one that can remove it? It's the powerful, merciful ministry of Jesus. But to this day, Paul says, Moses is read, and a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, that veil is taken away. And so we see that this isn't a failure of Jesus' ministry, but it is God's intention, my friends, that the Jews would not see the Messiah because of their hardness of heart. And so we have to contrast this to the unbelief that the prophet Isaiah, we have to contrast this unbelief of the Jews with the belief that we see here that John unpacks for us in the prophet Isaiah. And you see that? Look at verse 41. An unbelief helpfully is contrasted with belief because these things Isaiah said, because what? He, that's Isaiah, saw his... Who's the referent there? Whose glory is John talking about that Isaiah saw? You cannot read this passage any other way than to understand that Isaiah saw the Messiah, Jesus' glory. Sorry. Jesus' glory. Isn't that an amazing thing? 700 years before. So when Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, says that the, the glory, we're not going to turn there, I wish we could, we don't have time, that the glory is there, and he says, woe is me, I'm a man undone. That is Christ's glory that he sees. Isn't that amazing? And so this hardening of heart isn't just for isn't to all the Jews, but, but Isaiah is one who sees Christ's glory. And then what does Isaiah do in verse 41? These things he saw? And then what did he do? He spoke of them. And look at the opposite. Look at verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed they believed, but we have a qualification of their belief. And commentators do not, I think, all get this right. And obviously, I think I'm right, and I'm telling it to a bunch of, to, to everyone else, so I really think it's right. But I don't think the comment, not all the commentators get it. Some of them think that this is true belief. But look at this. These things Isaiah said because they saw his glory and he spoke, that's true belief. It's actually, it's, it's tur- he's turned his heart and his mouth to who? to Jesus. But then we see in verse 42, nevertheless, many of, even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not what? Boy, I think John's kind of making a dichotomy here, isn't he? He's making a contrast between true belief, belief that changes a whole trajectory, including your lips. Sorry, I get so excited. And belief that is just easy 
that doesn't really change or convert or turn you. And we even have a little bit more commentary, if you don't believe me, verse 43, for they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. So it seems to me that Isaiah stands in contrast with the unbelief here. And helpfully so. Because he saw Jesus' glory. And he was willing to speak of it. He was willing to change his whole life according to it. And so unbelief is helpfully contrasted with belief. And, and so that's a helpful thing for us. Now, the hardening of God's people in part is part of his plan. Folks, while this may seem counter to God's mercy, in reality, I want to take one more, one more moment of time to demonstrate to you just how much this reveals the power and the mercy of Jesus' ministry. Can you take your Bibles and just turn to Romans chapter 11? And we're going to read another lengthy passage here, but I hope this will be helpful. Because God's mercy and his power and his grace is demonstrated through this power, through this hardening, not in spite of it. It's not something we have to be ashamed of as Christians. Look at verse 11, Romans chapter 11. Paul is the author again. And he says, I say then, and we're kind of picking up midstream here, but we're going to do the best we can. I say them, they, this is Israel, did not stumble so as to fall. So what's he saying? Whenever the scripture uses that terminology, what's it saying? In other words, they, they, they fell, they stumbled, but they didn't fall or stumble completely. In other words, they took a misstep and they're in peril, but they're not, but it's not terminal. That's really what is going on here. They did not stumble as to fall, it is to be cut off, in the sense, from God completely or finally, did they? And he answers the question, no, may it never be. But their transgression, what's their transgression? It's rejecting the Messiah. Right, their transgression, but their transgression, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the who? To you and to me, to make them jealous. And now go to verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. In other words, human logic and reasoning ain't going to cut it. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. So we're talking about now a future time when those Jews who are living will come to Jesus at his second coming. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them. When God makes a promise, he can never break it. And he never makes promises he cannot. When I take away their sins, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, Gentile. Think about that. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. The promise is given to them. 
they are, God is not done with them. And even what's going on today, I know it's the big elephant in the room this morning, God, my friends, is not done with his people, Israel. For just as you Gentiles, uh, excuse me, let's not skip that, verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their, that's Jewish disobedience. So these, that is this, uh, so, so, so the Jews also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. In other words, mercy is coming because we have been shown mercy. Mercy is coming to the Jew, to Israel, because we have been shown mercy. So God never starts with hardening, and he never ends with hardening in his purposes and in his plan. Look at verse 42. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. And then Paul says this, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? And obviously the answer is no one. Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So even in the hardening of someone's heart, there's great mercy and grace from God. With Israel, there was mercy on the front end. There will be mercy again. We cannot let the difficult concept like this steal the headlines. And the headline is this. Jesus has a powerful, merciful ministry. And that is what we are unpacking this morning from John. And so now we're going to pivot from the necessity of unbelief to asking the question, okay, if we have unbelief and we see that clearly articulated, it's not for lack of knowledge. They had the Old Testament. They were expecting Isaiah's Messiah. It's not for lack of demonstrable proof they saw the power of Jesus raise lame men to walk and blind men to see. It's not for lack of who Jesus was, but it can be explained in the purposes of God. But now we want to ask the question, what is the nature of true belief? And this is where my burden is for you and for me this morning and for those that we disciple and those that we long to witness to and give the gospel to. We must know what true belief is because so many get so close but in the words of Isaiah they are not converted they do not actually turn to Jesus and what does Jesus say Jesus cries out in verse 44 and he doesn't say he who go goes to, to this church or he who does this religion or he who does this thing or he who lives this kind of a life he doesn't start with any of those things. What does he start with? Something almost too simple. So simple that many people actually end up missing who Jesus is because it is this simple. What does Jesus cries out? He who believes, what? In me. And that's a belief that at the end of the day will follow Jesus no matter the cost. Will speak Jesus, no, not perfectly, 
but will choose Jesus. He who believes in me does not believe in me, but believes in he who sent me. And so when we believe in Jesus, we also believe straight through to who? To God the Father. Because they are united and because God sent his son to perfectly accomplish his mission. And so salvation is a simple endeavor to believe in the person of Jesus Christ. It is not enough. Listen to me. It is not enough just to believe in God. The question in the room this morning for you is, can you believe in God without believing in Jesus? And if you're a Christian for 2,000 years, the answer has been, no way, not ever. But, the, but many people don't get that, folks. And so as you try to have civil conversations with your neighbors, it will get to a point where that has to come up. That's what I struggle with in my own life. Because who is a stumbling block? Who has to remove the veil? Jesus himself. And so we have this awful thing called universalism, and it packs itself up in so many ways, and it gets into people's suitcases, and it remains there. But basically, it's you can get to God how you think you can get to God, but as long as you get there. You know, I've heard a preacher illustrate it this way many times. You, you've, got, you've got a mountaintop, and God's on the top, and you can kind of choose your own adventure. You can go whichever side you want to, but as long as you get up there, it's okay. It's okay. You found God. And Jesus couldn't be more clear that it's not okay. That you must go through him. Period. I am the way, the truth, the life. If you want your burdens removed, come to me for rest. And you know, that's one of the great concerns about religion because there are some religions out there that say, you know what, I've got the way to God and it's not through Jesus. And then there are some religions out there that say, I've got the way to God, it's through Jesus and, 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 and. And I'm making the live stream guys really go here. <laughs> but you could keep on going all the way past the wall for the and, 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 ands with Jesus. And Jesus says, what? No way. It's not that simple. It's not that complicated. Look at the text. It's much more simple than that. He who believes in me does not believe in me, but him who sent me. Period. Period. Sorry. I know I'm loud. I know I'm obnoxious. I know I'm kind of like the youth pastor thing going on here. But this is the reality for eternal life. You can't just twiddle your thumbs and say this message. Jesus himself cries out about it. He implores you to believe three times in three verses here. Believe. You see that? Believe. So how do I know I believe in Jesus? That's the big question. Pastor Steve, I get it. You're saying, I've got to believe in Jesus. Fine, I believe. But then the question is what? 
Look at verse 47. Because he who believes in Jesus does something. It's kind of the difference here between the religious leaders who believed in Jesus, but when they were confronted with the Pharisees, the Pharisees' power and sway over their life, what did they not do with their mouth? They did not confess him. But it's completely opposite to what Isaiah did. When he saw, when Isaiah saw Jesus' glory, what did, Jesus, what, did, what did Isaiah have to do? He had to speak about it. Jesus says this in verse 47. If you're going to have true belief, this is what it's going to look like. And he does it by giving us the opposite. If anyone hears my sayings, so you could read this in one sense as believes. A superficial belief. A belief that doesn't change your heart and your mind and your ways and your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone hears my sayings and what? Does not keep them. Then he goes on to unpack, I do not judge them. I do not come to judge the world. Here's Jesus' mission, right? I came to save the world. But that doesn't mean it's okay. Because those very words and sayings that you say you believe in, in verse 48, will be the thing that judges you on the last day. We don't have time to unpack that, other than basically what Jesus is saying is this. It is not okay to say that you believe in Jesus, but not to actually live your life not believing in Jesus. It is not okay to do that. Believing in Jesus, true belief in Jesus, changes your trajectory. In this text, Isaiah says, you are converted, you are turned. So those who keep my word. And again, we at this church do not preach perfectionism. If that is the case, I would never want to be up here, and neither would Pastor Mike. But my friends, it does mean that Jesus is going to change your life. That you're going to be willing. Each one of us has to figure out how to take up his cross and follow him. And some of you this week, you have had disappointment and you have had doubt and you have had struggle. But you're still here. And you're still looking to Jesus. And you're still longing to follow him, even in your fumbling, stumbling ways. Some of you have blown a gasket this week, not on your car, but in your mouth or in your... And you know what? You're still here, not because you're a hypocrite, but because you so long to be a man that's humble and gentle of spirit like Jesus. It's not about, it's not about performance, but it is about Jesus just one step at a time changing you. And if you can say, I believe and I can see him changing my life, praise God. But if you can come into this auditorium time after time for 12 chapters and hear the marvelous grace of Jesus Christ and yet leave the auditorium and it doesn't even do a blooming thing for your life other than salve your conscience on a Sunday, 
My friends, I think with the authority of God's word here this morning, I can say I don't know if you're someone who has heard my Jesus' sayings and kept them, or if you've heard Jesus' sayings and not kept them and will be judged. Does that make sense? Because belief is simple. But it has profound implications for your life. And if you say you believe but don't have those profound implications, please, get some help. In all seriousness. Because, and we're ending here, to believe in Jesus and to hear his word, verse 49 and 50 is what? It is the commandment of what? Eternal life. This is a matter of eternal life. You know, Jesus' words perfectly and adequately reveal who God is. And aren't you glad that Jesus in this passage is saying exactly what the Father has commanded him because it is about what? Eternal life. And so we can have great confidence this morning in the gospel that we hold near and dear that has changed our lives through the Spirit of God converting us. We have great confidence this morning Because those words haven't been altered. Jesus has kept them perfectly. And they are the words of eternal life. So I do want to be sensitive to the age in which we live and the context in which this sermon in particular is being preached this morning. God's word is timeless. It's the pastor's job to take that timeless word, the word that gives here the commandment of eternal life, and apply it to the culture and context in which we live. So we have spoken about the, belief, the unbelief that is persistent and present today, that was persistent and present in Jesus' day, specifically here about Israel. And this morning, there are grieving Israelis, the whole nation in shock from the violence and death that's taken place on Gaza and elsewhere by Hamas and others. God hates this. God does not delight in this. God wants all to live, and that's why he gave his son Jesus. Not just to live for this world, but to live for the ones to come. And as unnecessary and horrifying and terrible as the events this past week are, and no doubt will continue to be, and how we feel for the individuals and the nation that has been ravaged by this utter brutal evil, We must not look past the greatest need before any human being that breathes. And that is to come and believe in Jesus. So I just want to ask you this morning, as you pray for a world that is in chaos, Don't let the chaos eclipse the call for people to come to Jesus. And I want to ask you this morning, 
I'm done with the sermon. So we've clocked that out, all right? But I want to ask you this morning that if you, if you know about Jesus, but my friend, he hasn't changed your life. There's a warning here for you. God's mercy can only extend so far because God is also a God that is good and he is a God that is just and he is a God that is right. So don't let the mercy of God fool you into thinking that you do not need to let Jesus change your life. Don't do that. I beg of you this morning, come to him and be converted. Turn. Not just in your head, but in your heart and in your feet. Because as Jesus ends his cry, it is a matter, my friend, of eternal life. Father, please, let no one walk out of this room today blinded with the veil. Oh Lord Jesus, we ask, we beg you in your grace and in your mercy. Save. And Father, help us this week. Help us to be men and women that are clear with the gospel. We have to be loving. We have to, we have to work it through a conversation in a wise way, especially with those that we are relating with on an ongoing basis. But, oh Lord, give me wisdom. Give, give this church wisdom and to be clear that they must come to Christ and Christ alone. In Jesus' name.